This is Eming, and you're listening to Beyond Asian Memes. In 2013, Fang Bros made a viral music video called Boba Life. The music video finally gave name to a subculture that was part of many young Asian American social life, including Phil from Wong Fu Productions. So a lot of Wong Fu's biggest videos were written at a boba shop, and I wanted to create a space where creators like me could like have that. The boba generation grew up hanging out, gossiping, and studying in boba shops. I just remember the first time I had that experience with it. I thought, "Wow, this is so cool!" And it wasn't like, "Oh, like this is so good." It was more just like the culture of going to get boba, and you know, having something that felt distinctly Asian American just made me feel really empowered. In this episode, we'll explore the many layers of boba history. I'm convinced the British pick up the milk tea with sugar habit from the Chinese, as well as how it became part of the Asian American identity. Asian Americans are so unique in that boba has seemed to be something that has stood the test of time for their culture. You are listening to Beyond Asian Memes. This is the podcast that analyzes Asian memes and discussions. Coming up, bubble tea. Hi everyone. My name is Christy Hang, and I am a food and travel writer. And I concentrate a lot on Chinese food and Chinese culture. Do you prefer to call it bubble tea or boba?、Um, in the U.S., I think it's more West Coast calls it boba, and then、uh, East Coast seems to call it bubble tea. I always grew up calling it boba. Then I realized when I went to Taiwan or anywhere else, and I said, "Can I have boba?" They would look at me funny, and then I realized it was just kind of inappropriate to say boba. Boba is Chinese slang for big boobies.、Uh, originally, the word I believe came from Taiwan, from like students who were joking around, just because it's kind of crude. Do you remember the first time you had bubble tea? The U.S. started having, or at least I started drinking boba in the '90s. I was like six years old or something, so I don't really remember much. Because ever since then, I actually developed a sort of addiction to boba. So I'm a very thin person, and then my family was always like, "Oh, you're gonna blow up soon, so you should drink and eat everything you want now," which is really bad advice. Don't listen to anyone that says that. And so I drank two large boba's a day, max sugar, max everything, extra boba, and and I almost became pre-diabetic because of it. Bubble tea is becoming more and more popular among people with all sorts of backgrounds. So where does this drink come from? To learn about the layers of boba history, I reached out to Dr. Brown. She's a professor of Chinese cuisine and medicine at the University of Michigan. Well, I mean, if it were up to me, I, I would start probably pretty early.、Um, people putting dairy products into tea dates to the early 13th century. This is something that we see in, in southern China, and this is an, a very interesting beverage because it's not just a drink in our sense. It has extremely thick milk or butter, and then on top of that, you know, people would often put things like ground sesame seeds or some kind of nut butter. So it, it was almost a meal in itself. With this, Dr. Brown refutes the common perception that the British were the first ones to combine milk and sugar with tea. Well, I would go back a little bit more because I'm I'm not sure the Chinese invented that combination. I think that that may have been something that was very popular, you know, with the nomadic populations. But if we were to sort of bracket that story and just 
move forward. I think that the British pick up the milk tea with sugar habit from the Chinese in the 17th century, and then they popularize it. And there is some sense that they may have reintroduced it to people in southern China um, and in Taiwan in the 19th century. Then, after the first Sino-Japanese War in 1895, Japan colonized Taiwan. Then the Japanese came in and they tried to introduce a modern dairy industry in in Taiwan. Um, It was really mostly geared for the Japanese who were living there, the soldiers and the settlers. And, you know, they introduced uh, modern breeds of Western dairy cattle. But this was not something that the Taiwanese themselves had much access to because of cost. I mean, I think the use was limited for special occasions, for medicine, for the rich. Japan pushed dairy to their soldiers because this was during the Meiji era, a period in which Japan adopted Western ideas to become a strong imperialist power. This was also the heyday of social Darwinism, and one thing that the Japanese noticed was how tall the English were. So they wondered, is height and diet the secret of European dominance? Meiji modernizers thought so, so they started promoting Western diets based on meat, milk, and wheat to improve the quote-unquote fitness of Japan. However, Japan's imperialist dream ended after World War II, when Japan lost all of its overseas territories. The Japanese militarists will not forget the USS Missouri. From here, the United States occupied Taiwan for six years. We move toward a new and better world of cooperation, of peace, and international goodwill. And then the Americans show up, right? And so you start to see aid shipments. You see things like dairy creamer. You have American franchises like 7-Eleven. So then my story would probably at this point pick up with the sort of Taiwanese population coming into contact with things like condensed milk, right? And, And... adding it to their black tea um, with sugar. So I, I think it's, you know, milk becomes more accessible to the Taiwanese as Taiwan's economy improves in the 80s and really the 90s, right? And that's when you start to see more consumption of these products. Um, my sense is that it peaked around 1994. And then the, the really sort of interesting question is, how do they make the leap to adding tapioca pearls, right? Tapioca is a starch extracted from the cassava root, which is a plant native to the Americas. It was initially a poor person's food, something that you you could produce quite inexpensively because tapioca especially grows in areas that are sort of what we call agriculturally marginal zones, so places where you can't grow regular co-ops. In some parts of Taiwan, people, you know, were maybe living in the hills where they didn't have access to rice, flour, or it was expensive. So they started making their New Year's dumplings, um, their sweet New Year's dumplings with tapioca flour. And then they would be making some kind of tapioca-based dessert with milk. You can see how the pieces were already there. At this point, Taiwan had milk tea and those tapioca desserts. Probably in the 1980s, somebody decided to marry these two traditions together. So my current hypothesis is that in the Southern Chinese-speaking world, there isn't a really very rigid distinction between drinks and foods. And so I think that's why that marrying the, the bubble tea with the tapioca sort of dessert wasn't sort of an unnatural one. And I, I suspect it happened multiple times, you know, in Taiwanese history. Dr. Brown, I know that there has been a dispute among two Taiwanese companies in which they both claim to have invented bubble tea. They took their case to the court 
trying to get a patent for the drink, but then the court decided that bubble tea is not subject to patent. What do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, and I, I think that was a smart move. I mean, I, I'm sorry that the two sides, the combatants, wasted all that money in legal fees, but I suspect both of them came up with it independently because milk tea and tapioca desserts were so common ingredient in Taiwan. So, you know, it, it most likely happened multiple times. I can see why someone would want to have a patent, right? Because Boba is a $3 billion business, right? And it's, it's, it's projected to double in the next few years, like 2026, right? I mean, who knows now with COVID, um, one of the largest markets for Boba, of course, is, is mainland China, where you have 1.4 billion consumers, right? Who, you know, now have for the first time, really, sort of almost universal access to dairy. From there, bubble tea finally made its way to the U.S., thanks to the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965. This bill says simply that from this day forth, those wishing to immigrate to America shall be admitted on the basis of their skills and their close relationships to those already here. This abolished policies that restricted entries of ethnic minorities, allowing waves of Taiwanese immigrants from the 60s throughout the 90s. So I, I suspect it, it follows the diaspora. Initially, it's, a, it's sort of a Chinese-Taiwanese thing, and, and then it becomes a pan-Asian-American thing. After the break, we explore how boba culture became a part of the Asian-American life. Growing up in the 90s, you are the first generation that really grew up with this concept of boba culture. What does this term mean to you? Uh, well, growing up in an area that didn't have that many Asians, boba was a treat. We had to drive an hour away to get it. And so it just meant so much to be able to have something that reminded you of an authentic Asian experience. And at that point, it was something that none of your friends could get because it was so hard to get it. And then I think starting when I was... Just gone to high school, so maybe when I was in ninth grade, they opened up a boba place uh, close to where I was living, but it was still a good 20 minutes away. And that became the boba place. And ever since that opened, I remember bad boba started popping up in donut shops. Um, I don't know if you know, but most donut shops in the U.S. are run by Cambodians. They were the first immigrants out here that did the donut shops. And then Thai tea came along, right? So uh, Vietnamese restaurants or Thai restaurants started serving Thai tea boba. And then they started serving milk tea boba. So then we had essentially a kind of a lolly cup, right? And so lo that lolly cup became, um, they bought it out black label, which means they can call it whatever they want, but they're still using lolly cup products. And that for me, from ninth grade, I mean, I still go to it now. So I've been going to this place for, oh gosh, 15 years, 20 years, I don't know, it's still there. So how has having this, like, new local boba shop changed things for you? It was just the place where you can meet other people who are Asian as well or liked Asian culture because just my town that I grew up with didn't have that many Asian people. And so you would go to a boba shop and go hang out, do your homework, or just chill out. And then you would meet people from other schools who would also drive 20 minutes, 30 minutes to go here and hang out. So that was the one place where I was like, wow, there's other people like me that aren't related to me. And we could talk about things 
that were going on, and they'd be like, "Hey, have you watched this drama? Or well, have you gone to Asia? Have you, you know?" It was just kind of before so much social media, and it was just a place to hang out where your parents wouldn't be like, "You know, who are you going out with? What are you doing? Why are you not a library?" Because like, oh, well, I can do my, I can write my essay from a boba shop, and they have food too and drink, and it's not coffee. I won't be wired all day. So it was just something that was like parental approved, and it was a social experience. And do you think that the social experience has changed now versus back then?、Um, I think when I first started going,、uh, it was very bare bones, not much decorations, anything at all. Some of the first boba stores were opened by immigrant families in California's San Gabriel Valley. Well, first of all, it started at eighty-nine cents. I remember the day. It started at eighty-nine cents. At the time, it was more about survival than answering a call. And a lot of the decor now is very Pinterest-like, so everything is almost like you're looking at a Pinterest page. I feel like everyone has a great stamp card and a great logo or a great name. People have really done a lot to their branding these days. It's like who do, who do you go to? Like what's your boba shop choice? It's a very it's a very like oh this is me. This is part of my identity. It's very it's a very strange concept. Yeah. With its growing popularity, the new generation of bubble tea stores offer a wider variety than ever. We have hipster places where someone puts the weirdest flavors together. There's been places that do like a show for you. They can do card tricks for you while they do your boba. There, they have live bands here where you can have your boba and brick tea toast or popcorn chicken. There is places that. Um, do well. They don't do anymore, but previously they were doing alcoholic boba. While bubble tea is popular all over East Asia, in the U.S. it seems to hold a different meaning. When I would go back to Hong Kong, I know boba was really big twenty something years ago, and that every time they have a wave of something, everyone opens. And this, like the same thing, different brands. It's on every street. It lasted for like three years, and then everything closed because it just wasn't in anymore. And then I'd say about three, four years ago, same thing happened. And so for Hong Kong, I really saw the the trend. You know, it comes every couple of years, and they'll back off again. But in the U.S., I really haven't noticed that. It's been here to stay. Do you think that Asian Americans tend to embrace boba? More consistently because it's sort of become like a cultural symbol, whereas you know perhaps in Taiwan they don't necessarily see that way. Yeah, I think I mean in general I think food is the way to learn about people's cultures, and Asian Americans are so unique in that they might not have the language of their ancestors, they might not have a lot of things, but boba has seemed to be something that has stood the test of time for their culture and their own experience. So. It's it's something that Asian Americans can really take pride in, and the boba that we have here a lot of times is different from what you can find in Asia as well. So people can hold on to that and say that's a uniquely kind of like Asian American experience, I guess. And why do you think that out of all things, bubble tea specifically kind of became this cultural symbol? I mean, why not dim sum or laksa or really any other foods? I think a lot of the foods that Asians or different types of Asians gravitate towards is. Taste, so they have this this palate, and like this tastes good to me. Like for example, durian tastes good to me. Might not taste good to someone else. Stinky tofu tastes good to me. Maybe not to someone else. 
But because boba is essentially any flavor out there, there's something for everyone. You have your fried popcorn chicken. Um, the word boba is just not the physical tapioca balls anymore. It's so much more to that. And so that's why everyone has kind of like some sort of good feeling towards boba. And now with all these varieties of boba shops, do you think there's one that's uh, trending the most? I think people really enjoy the freshly made boba, where you can go there and actually see them rowing out the dough, putting it through the machine and it turning into the balls in front of your face. I think in their mind, they think it's healthier. And I think it's just a gimmick. Boba isn't supposed to be healthy. It doesn't do anything for you. Yes, despite tea generally being associated with healthy drinks, ingredients like non-dairy creamers and toppings contain lots of sugar. I was almost pre-diabetic, and so I had to cut down on boba. So now I am down to maybe two regular-sized bobas a week and less sugar. I can say I've, I've weaned myself off boba. I am relatively healthy now. It's been eight years, and... Um, and I'm okay now. My blood sugar levels are somewhat normal. This, of course, does not mean that we should not drink bubble tea. But it's simply a reminder that we should drink it in moderation. After all, bubble tea has helped Asian Americans getting closer for generations. I don't think I ever realized how powerful it was as a place of community, living in a place that didn't have so many people that looked like me. And the fact that a simple drink could do that, that's not something you can get at Starbucks or by going to a coffee shop. And so I'm very grateful that growing up, a lot of people feel like they have to fit in, especially if they live in a place that doesn't have a lot of Asians. And so culturally, I'm very glad that I had boba because maybe it had something to do with me wanting to retain my culture more, being more proud of it, speaking you know, Chinese at home and learning different languages. It kind of um, helped me think that Asians were cool. Because I feel like Asians got cool mainstream, like what, like in the last 10 years? But pr prior to that, it wasn't so cool to be Asian, right? So I think a, a, a little bit of that has to do with the fact that we had a gathering place and we can give credit to that to Boba. I feel like as like, you know, first or second generation kid, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of times growing up in America, we have to um, assimilate to other people's cultures, right? Like you know, hip hop and R&B, skaters and, you know, <laughs> punk rock bands or whatever. Um, but when I first had boba, I was like, this is Asian American. Um, so I associated boba or cafes with being cool. If you enjoyed this episode, I recommend you checking out Dr. Brown's blog at ChineseFoodHistory.org and Christy Hank's travel and food blog. Links are in the description. Thank you for making it all the way through here. We'll come back with a bunch of new episodes in the new season. Stay tuned on social media for updates. This episode is co-produced with Samantha Kim. Cover art is by Ashley Sam Ima. Introduction music is composed by Cameron Kuwada. Phil's interview is provided by Colty Collective. Also, thanks Fong Bros for letting us use the music. See you in the next episode. <laughs>